1: on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll take a look at the state of the economy, including the first quarter GDP report, inflation expectations, the prospects for a soft landing as the Fed begins to tighten monetary policy, And uh, we'll look at whether there are any glimmers of hope uh, for immigration reform. Our guest is Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum and former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Doug, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Uh, You know, um, Doug, when I contacted you about being on the show to discuss the first quarter GDP report. I thought we'd be talking about a slowdown uh, in the numbers. I didn't think we'd be talking about an actual contraction. uh, But when the Commerce Department reported last week, that's that's what they said. A first quarter contraction of one point four percent on an annualized basis. At the same time, uh, inflation was running hot at 8%. So uh, uh, what are, what to make of this? Is it is it time to start freaking out? Uh, I was afraid
2: that people would freak out. Um, I, <laughs> I, like most people, had expected uh, a low number because we had a really big number in the fourth quarter in large part because of a huge contribution by an inventory run-up. And one expected that to reverse itself. And so I thought we'd get a a 1.1 or a one, um, but I thought it would have a positive sign. So uh, when you look inside the report, you know, did, did, I, did I have that instinct, right? Yeah, yeah, we saw some big inventory declines and they subtracted nearly a percentage point from GDP, but the bigger impact was uh, net exports, uh, which showed a, a real sharp down uh, pull about three percentage points. So uh, I think the right way to think about this report is to say, okay, what am I worried about? Uh, in the US, we're worried about inflation and an overheated economy. Uh, what, what households and businesses look like in this report? Well, final sales to domestic purchasers up 2.6%. Um, that's not a downturn. That That's a, an economy that's still growing. Inflation, that's 8%. And so, the problems we had on Wednesday before the report are the same problems we had on Thursday after the report, and I don't think we should change course in any way because of it. I mean, the Fed should move down its its path of tightening, and uh, fiscal policy does not need to stimulate the economy or do anything else that might exacerbate inflation.
3: So let's sure. let's pop up. A- pop up the, the hood on the GDP report a second. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the role of imports. Um, one of the, the things that you noted is it, one of the biggest subtractions to growth in this latest report was net exports, the difference between what we've exported and what we imported. And we didn't export a lot <laughs> and we imported a lot. Uh, and so this this concept is growing that imports subtract from GDP and are thus bad for the economy. Can you unpack that a little bit? Is that a correct assessment?
2: Uh, It's not a correct economic assessment. It's in a correct uh, accounting assessment. When you add up the components of GDP, you you add up consumption, investment, government spending, and uh, exports and subtract off imports. So if you're an accountant, imports subtract from GDP. But the reality is a lot of our imports are intermediate goods. And we can take those intermediate goods and sell them to the American public only because firms add value to them. And so you need to add value to those imports, so they are a, a, an important contribution to total value-added and if we didn't have them, we couldn't add the value and have the sales. We wouldn't have the, the C or the I or the G that we otherwise would have had. So they're helping uh, us produce GDP. They're an important uh, component of it. And people should not be confused by the accounting, the economics of, of bringing into the country those resources you need to produce goods and services of value and sell them to people, largely domestically, but also they might turn right around and sell the value, final good as an export. That's, that's where we get our, our income. and That's a valuable process.
0: So
3: I, I think about it in terms of okay, I drive a you know a ten year old Honda Pilot around town. It's it's a foreign made automobile, so it was an import. But that's the automobile that gets me to work. It's the automobile that gets me to the grocery store where I earn money, I spend money, et cetera. So that's a good thing, correct?
2: Yeah, I mean it's a component of uh, producing the best value for our economy, and and for you, that's that's the way you've organized your life, and and that's what you value. Those purchases, Honda is an essential component of that.
3: Mm-hmm. Second question I wanted to ask was uh, You had talked about briefly about inventories and the change in inventories, and how, uh, you know, as the economy is, is struggling, or it's not struggling, as the economy is emerging from this COVID induced recession and it's doing so much faster than we anticipated, and the United States economy is moving so much faster than everybody else around us, are we getting to a place where these seasonal adjustment factors that are applied to every GDP we get, GDP report we get, are they Sort of distorting the data in a way because the data, underlying data, isn't obeying the natural seasonality. And I think about it in terms of inventories. You see normally this big run-up in the fall prior to Christmas for inventories. Inventories are depleted over the Christmas holidays. Everybody sells everything and then they, they they restock in January. That's not exactly what happened last year. We went up in the fall, we went up again in the winter, and we went up again, but just not as much you know, last quarter. So are are, we, are are the seasonal adjustment factors sort of distorting a, an accurate picture of what the economy is actually doing?
2: Well, I think the seasonal adjustment factors are are an issue right now because we are not seeing the typical seasonal patterns because of the, the COVID-19 interference, and th- there's really not a lot to do about that, to, okay. except to know that you should be taking the numbers with a grain of salt because of there's additional noise in there because of the, the shift in the seasonal patterns it's not just G- GDP. We, we seasonally adjust just a huge array of economic data from, you know, name it, uh, retail sales and, and everything that we get on a, on a monthly basis. So the right thing to do is to look at all of the reports and discern the underlying trends in the economy, not rely on a single report like GDP. It's a good summary, but, but we're, we're looking every month and, and even weekly at things like unemployment insurance claims to look at the strength of the economy. The other thing that's complicating here is that um, we know that international and national supply chains have been uh, it, disrupted by the the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, and we've had trouble finding drivers for trucks, and we've had trouble with ports, and we had all sorts of things, and it's not a crazy notion that in those circumstances, firms would give up on the just-in-time system they have and suddenly hold more inventory. So you might see a run up that doesn't have a run down as they sort of provision for operating in the face of the pandemic. So some of that's probably going on. How much and in what season? Not a clue. So you know we're we're faced with the difficulty of interpreting these data and I and I don't see easy resolution to it.
3: Do you so the the GDP is is revised. You know, we we take a, an advanced look, which is what we just saw, there's a second look, there's a third look. Um, do you expect um, The GDP data, like especially the one that we just saw to be revised upwards, is there any way to think? I mean, the last couple have been revised upwards. Is there any reason to think this is or just a total crapshoot?
2: Uh, well, my number was one, so it has to be revised up. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do think that um, we should expect um, an upward revision. And the reason is that the trade data are the hardest to get in real time. It is the place where we see some of the bigger revisions. And um, I, I think this was such a big move on net exports that that one thinks is probably influenced somewhat by by the first reporting of the data. We'll see we'll see what it comes out in the wash when we get done.
1: Some of the uh, the longer term trends are important here That uh, as, as we were talking about there's there's a lot of noise. But, you know, the big factor right now that everybody's paying attention to is inflation. And there are so many um, things that can affect that. You mentioned one, the supply chain issue. Uh, uh, and there's also uh, a food issue, I guess, with the war. I mean, the other impri- and, um, unpredictable factor is the uh, the war in Ukraine. So a couple of questions. One is, um, you know, China is uh, going through lockdowns or semi-lockdowns as a result of fighting COVID, and um That raises questions about whether or not that's going to make it more difficult to resolve the supply chain issues. And then the other one about uh, whether food prices will remain high because Ukraine is, after all, the breadbasket of Europe. So are we going to see continued high inflation pressures from those two events?
2: I think the answer is yes. Um, We know that... um the combination of Ukraine and Russia is far more important in wheat and, and other foods than in oil, for example. And uh, we've already seen the impact of global oil markets on near-term inflation outlooks. We'll see we'll see more of the same out of the food pressures. Uh, oil also feeds into fertilizer. Fertilizer is a key component of food, so that, that constellation of factors is going to keep real pressure on inflation from the supply side. Um, I'm worried about um, the downside risks from China. Um, I've been worried about this all year, and and my worst fears appear to be coming true. Uh, China does not have an effective vaccine. It had a vaccine that was maybe 60 percent effective against the original uh, virus. Given the mutations that have taken place to date, it's essentially completely ineffective. And they're forced to try to use complete quarantines as as the only way to control spread of the virus. That will fail. I I don't see any plausible scenario in which they're successful, which means we're going to have a raging epidemic in in China and the Chinese economy is going to suffer. And that's that's a big chunk of the global economy. And that that means uh, that the near term headwinds for growth are bigger than we might have anticipated. And it will spill over to the US, I think, more than people realize. And uh, it's my biggest concern about the outlook for the global economy at the moment.
1: Um, One thing that uh, seems to remain strong, I think you mentioned, is uh, consumer spending. Uh, In part, it seems that's because people are drawing down their savings, which they were able to accumulate during the pandemic. Uh, So is there a little bit of, I don't want to say a downside, but I mean, is there a, a caveat there that perhaps people are... You know, like the old uh, character on, uh, you know, Roadrunner that runs off the edge of the cliff and keeps walking even after he's off the edge of the cliff. I mean, are consumers spending beyond their means right now? And, and might there be a, a, a recalculation at some point that would lower consumer spending? I, I think that consumers are spending well within their means. Their means
2: are just um, unusually high because of the tremendous transfers that came out of the government in the past uh, two years. Um, So they're not doing anything that's inherently dangerous or unwise, but those transfers have stopped their capacity to rely on them will diminish over time. There's no way around that. They'll be back to the things that typically power consumer uh, spending, one of which is just uh, uh, wage and salary uh, incomes. And there the bad news has been that unlike uh, 2020, when uh, those who remained um, employed got a raise and there wasn't much inflation, those who remain employed. Are getting big raises, but they're not as big as inflation. And so the vast majority of people in the labor force are employed and they're losing uh, real wage uh, growth right now. And so that'll diminish consumer spending probably more than anything else as time goes on. That, by the way, is exactly what the Fed needs to cool inflation. And so you uh, he, he can't um, simultaneously say, I want to keep this labor market and get rid of inflation because they're the same thing. We're going to see the labor market sort of um, uh, become less hot. We're going to see wage growth become less uh, rapid, and um, that's necessary for the for the inflation to diminish. And the, and the Fed believes, take them at their word, that this is about a three year process, right? That they can they can generate uh, reduced inflationary pressures, get down to their target of two percent, without causing a recession, and it'll take say three years. And so, I think the concern would be. Jump too hard, try to get it really under control in the first year, and and make a big mistake that causes downturn. Uh,
1: so you don't see a danger of a wage price spiral. There's certainly a danger. I mean, you know, we'll
2: get the best read on the labor market this Thursday when the employment cost index comes out, and we'll we'll see what what wages look like adjusting for shifts across industries and the you know the composition of of the labor force. Uh, That's a good read on the on the data. I I think it'll probably run at about five percent. And that's that's something you could have last forever with three and a half percent inflation. So, you know, wages are 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 in a position right now to support continued inflation. And the Fed's going to have to push harder on the labor market to get inflation down to two.
3: So talking about the, the current inflationary environment, how the Fed is trying to combat inflation, uh, the uh, Biden administration is also trying to combat inflation, and a couple of the policies that they have that are under consideration. Uh, number one is uh, gas tax holiday. Uh, the other is, you know, canceling a certain amount of student debt. Are those wise fiscal policies at a time when we're trying to to combat inflation?
2: No, I mean th- those are political air cover at best, laughable at worst. Um, there's nothing about a gas tax holiday, which for the record, I had to defend on the McCain campaign. It was a terrible idea then. It remains a terrible idea now. Um, a, a gas tax holiday does not diminish demand by uh, one gallon. It doesn't increase supply by one gallon. It doesn't do anything to the fundamental problems in the gasoline market. And so um, all it does is give up the the money that would go into the highway trust fund and as a fiscal mistake from that point of view, canceling student debt is is I, I, I simply cannot understand the fascination of the left with this. Um, it is now being portrayed um, uh, not as a micro policy, but as a macro policy to somehow deal with our, our macro policy problems. But uh, if you cancel the debt, you change the liability from the person voluntarily took out that loan to some taxpayers now involuntarily going to have to pay it. You don't on net do anything to the economy. So they're wrong about that. And it's an injustice to put this on the back of the taxpayers. It's a a fiscal mistake. Someone has to pay this loan back. And and so I can't support either of these.
1: What about uh, releasing gas from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Didn't work the first two times. What do you think about this one? Well, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, I I, I, I I take it that you're not a big proponent of the Putin price hike idea. <laughs> oh, I am not a big fan of that. Again, you know, we're all grownups
2: and I understand that the White House is in in a, in a terrible political situation and they, they don't want to just simply say we made a mistake with the American Rescue Plan. We overstimulated the economy. Shouldn't have done it. They're not going to say that. It's true, but they, they can't. So they're, they're pointing fingers as fast as they can. But the 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 gymnastics they did to come up with putin being responsible for 70 percent of the increase in inflation was simply astounding um and and that's a real misleading um uh statement to the american public right this is the the i did a, a short piece where i looked at the whole record on inflation since the inauguration and uh the the, co- the contribution of the putin price hike is seven not 70 percent. And so this is just like those old complaints about supply side economics. There's nothing wrong with it. They can't be fixed with division by 10.
1: <laughs> yeah, I looked at that. It's on the uh, American Action Forum website. And it's uh, I mean, it seems to me that the oil prices, gas prices of the pump are going to remain elevated for a while. I mean, particularly because of what we've got going on here in Europe.
2: Well, I don't know. I you know, and and and. That that's a statement that's true about almost everything every day, but I <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the world, Rebecca.
2: The
1: out, the outlook is uncertain, or as Georgie bearer would say, predictions are very difficult, particularly about the future. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, no, we have the the issues in uh, Ukraine and, and broader Europe, but we also have China, which is a huge demand for um, uh, global oil, slowing and slowing fairly quickly. Um, it's hard to know how much, because I don't believe any of the numbers they put out, right? Same thing as saying they had six cases of COVID, hard to buy. Um, so I, I don't know how fast, but it seems like it's slowing pretty quickly. That's gonna take a lot of pressure off uh, oil markets at the margin. And and we know how volatile oil can be. It's that when you've got something that's very inelastic in demand, very inelastic in supply, little shifts cause big price movements. And, and so we could see oil prices actually move more dramatically, I think, than anything else. But, I think the food prices remain high. I don't see how that uh, doesn't have the same uh, characteristics. So, um, you know, th- th- those pressures are going to remain in, in, in place. To me, the the most important inflation number, the one that I keep trying to focus on, is the increase in the cost of shelter, mm. uh, homeowner's mortgages, renters, uh, monthly rent. That's not a number that's like food and energy prices, volatile, bouncing around quickly, Uh, That number sort of moves pretty slowly and it has moved up sharply uh, over the the past year and a half. And uh, that that inflation is now at five percent and getting it back down to to two is hard. I mean, if you want to go from get to the two percent target and have five percent shelter inflation, everything else has to be zero. Uh, That's not going to happen. So so leaning against shelter inflation is is a longer term proposition. I think why the Fed or at least why uh, Chairman Powell, when he was uh, giving his speech, uh, talked about a three year timeline. We're
1: going to have to take our first break here. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Uh, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tory Gorman and I are discussing the first quarter GDP report with Douglas Holtz-Eakin, president of the American Action Forum and former director of the Congressional Budget Office. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman, and I are discussing the first quarter GDP report with Douglas Holzbecken. He's the president of the American Action Forum and former director of the Congressional Budget Office. Um, Doug, back in 2019, before the pandemic hit, you participated in a Concord Coalition project that was designed to articulate a... uh, Fiscally Responsible Economic Growth Agenda, and we looked at a number of policies, including workforce growth and improving productivity and making social security sustainably solvent and healthcare reform. Uh, Your piece of that was uh, a paper on reform of the legal immigration system. Uh, We're gonna need more workers in the future and our legal immigration system is, is not up to it at the moment. Um, so we, my point is not so much to go back into the details of the paper. You can talk about those recommendations, uh, if you want, but it's more just looking at the fact that immigration reform is, is needed and, and, and yet all of the debate seems to be over, uh, you know, political debates, frankly, over the border. Um, but just this last week, I think a couple of senior members of the Senate Judiciary Committee met to think, see if there was any consensus. Uh, And and frankly, there used to be some consensus uh, uh, on immigration reform. So what do you think? I mean, is there any glimmers of hope that uh, people could get back to a rational discussion on this? I don't have
2: great near term hope, to be honest. Um, But but here's the lay of the land. Um, One of the things that happened during the pandemic caught a lot of people's attention was uh, a decline in fertility. Uh, now, it turns out that that might not have been as dramatic as what we initially thought. In the first half of 2020, there were about 60,000 fewer births than one might have expected. The second half, there were 50,000 more. So on net, it didn't seem as big as, as initially thought. But but it did highlight the fact that the really big move in fertility was in the years leading up to the pandemic, where we had a steady declines in uh, fertility. And the reality was that the native-born population had sub-replacement fertility. is a fancy way of saying we don't have enough babies to even stay the same population size. So in the absence of immigration, we're Japan. We just get progressively smaller, we get older, we become less potent in terms of our uh, economy and our ability to project our values on the international stage. But the flip side to that is by choosing our immigration policies carefully, we can essentially control our future. We can dictate the, the pace at which the labor force grows, we can dictate the composition of the skills in that labor force, and we can make a tremendous contribution to the vitality of the economy. And And that, to me, should be a huge agenda item uh, for, for Congress and any future administration. I'm cognizant that we always get wrapped around the axle on the border and and on those who are here illegally but you you can't fix the border or those who are here illegally without fixing the visa granting system that that got us in this place mess to begin with right so the legal immigration reform really ought to be on the table and and we have always had as the cornerstone of that legal immigration uh family unification, refugees, asylum status. Th- those are noble humanitarian objectives. I have, I have no reason to, to somehow say that was a mistake, but we have never really used it as a tool of economic policy. We grant fewer of, than 5% of our visas uh, on economic grounds. And if we just put more economic content into thinking about who comes to the United States, I think it'd be an enormous benefit to the economy. And, there's no party that doesn't want the economy to prosper and there's no american who should vote against having a more more powerful strong economy so that gives me eternal hope that we will get to immigration reform because it it will work there is no way around it um, the only question is how do you want to make these decisions and the paper that you so nicely sponsored um really was just about one way to think about granting those and, and for the listeners that the the short version is there are two tracks for, for bringing workers into the country. Tracks number one is essentially glorified resume reading, right? You just sort of look at the resume. This person has a PhD. They have five years of work experience. They speak English. And you assign points for all these desirable attributes. And if you have enough points, you're in. And, and that would so we could easily identify high-skilled um, workers that way, I think. But we all know some people out there who are fantastic workers, didn't graduate from high school or maybe have a spotty record in college, whatever it might be, uh, and they're tremendous workers. Well, they prove themselves on the job. They prove their value in the American labor market. So a second track would be have people find an employer who's willing to sponsor them to come in. They work. If they stay continuously employed for two temporary visas, we give them points toward the permanent one and off they go. And, and, and either way, we're going to attract the skill mix that we need to to support uh, a really productive economy, and we'll have more workers and growth in the labor force, so we can have faster top line growth. Um, that's there are lots of ways to do that in the in the details, and I don't have a stake in those details, but I I do think the current stalemate that we're in politically and the gridlock we're in from policy point of view is really bad for the country. I mean, it, we're giving away the opportunity to grow more rapidly, help a lot more people.
3: As I say, Doug, that, that solutions just seem so common sense. Why can't, why can't we get there? <laughs> well,
2: we, we can't get there because um, uh, immigration touches every piece of the fabric of American life. And so it's not just the economic problem. And you have to, I think, assuage fears on other fronts, loss of ethnic identities and all sorts of things um, uh, to get to the economic component. And because, you know. Bluntly, I, I thought for years that uh, Democrats um, were, were more satisfied to have immigration as an issue than an accomplishment. They could go every four years to the polls and reliably beat the, the, the tar out of Republicans. And in one of the great um, uh, 180s of all time, Donald Trump did exactly that to them. He never wanted to fix immigration. He wanted to have it as an issue. And so we now have two parties who are quite good at not getting this done. And we have to unlearn some of those reflexes.
1: I think I read that uh, CBO projects that by 2044, there'll be more deaths in this country than births. And, you know, we're, we, we really <clears throat> do need to think about the demographics and the economics of the situation. And you know, look, border issues are important. I'm, I mean, I'm uh, you, you do want to have a secure border. So I think you really need to be able to to do both, and uh, so I, I hope that there is some sort of consensus. But I, I don't see it really happening anytime soon. I, I'm af- afraid I agree with you. But
2: um... well, I, you know, I, I think people need to recognize that we do have to have control of our southern border. You you aren't a sovereign nation if you can't control your borders. And that's a reality, and and we don't want people living here illegally indefinitely. That there are all sorts of um, problems that arise with that, and so those two issues merit being addressed. And if you want to to address them, I don't think we should uh, attack people for for their positions, saying we need to do better on those fronts. And right now, we we see those those attacks every day. But as I'll say, as I said before, if you try to just fix those things and don't fix the visa granting system that created the problem to begin with, you're you're going to be right back with a bad border and and people here illegally in another thirty years, right? So Let's get this and do everything and and we'll benefit
1: from that. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's a a quick thing here. Um, Last year's big agenda of the Build Back Better Act has has sort of run aground and that name is no longer being used and shall not be spoken. But um, uh, and I I I, I, I think it probably um, couldn't get off the ground uh, out of its own weight. I mean, I think it's like one of those things where the plane was too overloaded to take off. Uh, are there some ways? Uh, it, but it did surface some legitimate issues about workforce growth and things like workplace. Um, you know, whether we want to have paid family leave or ch- uh, subsidized childcare. Uh, to help with workforce participation or uh, climate change issues. What are the best ways to deal with that? Um, uh, Are there some uh, ways that we could maybe look at those issues that could attract uh, maybe more broader support?
2: I think the answer ought to be yes. Um, You know, I've I've spent a couple of years on uh, a bipartisan working group on uh, paid leave, for example. And you know what? What do we want to do for paid parental leave, family leave, medical? Leave. Um, and it doesn't strike me as crazy that the the younger voters of the 21st century would have a paid parental leave program, for example. But the sticking point is always how do you pay for it? And and I think what Build Back Better has highlighted for people who care about fiscal issues is that they were going to in the original incarnation really use up a lot of the the revenue potential of the federal government and use it to expand the, and pay for these new programs, but they weren't going to pay for the new programs in full, only in part, and they weren't going to fix the problems we have with the existing programs. And that struck me as an extremely unwise position to put than the sort of next Congress in. Now you have problems you inherited, problems you just created, but you have huge problems. So yes, we should do those things, but we should do it in a way that that um my experience suggests which is let's fix the social safety net that we have you know a sustainable social security system for example uh, a medicare system that doesn't you know generate one third of all the federal debt outstanding as it as it does in its current uh, configuration um let's, let's fix those things up and in the process create room for things that Voters in this day and age might want their Congress to provide them. I mean, it strikes me as a failure of representative democracy that you can't elect someone to do, say, paid family leave because there's no money because we didn't take care of our past effectively. So um, Go Back Better gave gave us a a wish list of things that people might like. um, But what it really should do is give us the resolve to fix and preserve the programs from the past that we want and make room for the ones we'd like in the future.
1: We're uh, quickly running down on time with this segment, but I just uh, I just wanted to ask about climate change. Are there issues there that you think uh, Congress should address?
2: Yes, Um, I think we need a a wholesale different policy. I'm not a big fan of what the Biden administration is trying to do. I mean, it, it is from a policy perspective uh very undiversified and risky so we'll we'll create the cleanest electricity sector the world has ever seen we'll then transmit that electricity across a national grid that has never existed and which no one has a plan for and distribute it using a distribution network that has to be completely different than we have now and power every car factory and house in america with it if anything goes wrong there it doesn't work and and that's that's a risky way to approach a climate strategy I'm a big fan of using a carbon tax, right? Let's give uh, the private sector the incentive to take on this problem. Let's um, start from the ground up instead of top down. It will evolve however it evolves. We shouldn't care about what fuels go in and what technology are used. We should care about what greenhouse gas emissions come out and nothing else. And so focus the policy on that and let people figure it out. I've always felt that as soon as the American business community wanted to solve climate change, we'd solve climate change. Um, this would give them an incentive to do that. And, 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 you know, it would, it would raise some revenue and we could have a discussion about the best way to to deal with that. I, um, you know, but that's, that would require both parties getting serious and getting together and doing something on climate and raising taxes. Um, those are, those are hard votes to envision in the next year or two.
1: Well, this segment uh, was the we wish um, segment of <laughs> things we wish would happen. Uh, we'll be right back uh, with another segment where we're going to talk about slowing inflation without causing a recession. The Fed's soft landing right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I'm talking with Douglas Holtz-Eakin, the former director of the Congressional Budget Office and currently president of the American Action Forum. And I'm joined uh, on this segment by Concord Coalition chief economist, Steve Robinson. Um, Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and and talk about monetary policy because uh, the Fed is trying to engineer a so-called soft landing now, which is... um, uh, you know, trying to slow inflation uh, without causing a recession, which is a tricky thing to do. Um, so, Doug, uh, just briefly, uh, how high do you think interest rates may have to go and, and uh, how long a process might that take?
2: Uh, well, I, I think the Fed has made uh, its rough plans pretty clear in that they think they have to get to neutral somewhere like two and a half percent as, quote, expeditiously as possible. Most people think that's at the end of this year. They've been trying to telegraph that as clearly as they can so that the world does not freak out about the fact that they're raising rates in an election year and actually in an election season, something they would not normally like to be doing. But uh, they're going to take this seriously. So that gets you to neutral. That means you haven't yet gotten real interest rates to a point where they're impinging on the economy. So that means it probably have to go even higher in, in 2023. Um, I, I think that's probably right. Um, so so let me just get the bad news out of the way because I'm, I'm the reason people drink. Everything I say is pressing. Um, <laughs> you, you do that so we don't have to, but. It, it's my job, yes. Um, uh, the Fed has never successfully engineered a soft landing when unemployment has been below 5% and inflation has been above 4%. Uh, we're there. So. Um, The historical odds are stacked against success and they have are are undertaking this not with historical conditions, but with the what we hope is the tail end of the pandemic, which is uncertain in and of itself. We could have another wave of cases. We get another variant Who knows Uh, there's there's a war in Ukraine makes figuring these things out tougher. and they are, are in a position they've never been before. They've got a $9 trillion balance sheet they have to trim down. So it's not just a matter of racing rates. Right? So they have to do other things that they've never done before. I'd say, you know, this is a pretty high degree of difficulty maneuver. And um, uh, if they pull it off, um, you know, Jerome Powell goes to the Hall of Fame. I think it's, it's pretty simple.
1: Um, you know, you mentioned the balance sheet. Uh, Steve uh, has been trying to figure out. Um <laughs> What happens there, Um, and and you know, uh, we've, I mean, because the Fed has never been run up a balance sheet like this, and so never had to draw it down, and so the consequences, potential consequences to markets, the economy, the budget, we're trying to uh, sort through a little bit. And Steve has asked. very, very respected, intelligent people all over the community in Washington, and nobody seems to want to give an answer, uh, or no, or even have thought about it. Uh, Steve, you want to? So we're going to try with you, but Steve, go ahead. You, you can you can set up the question better.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you know, since 2008, there's been a dramatic change in the way the Fed has conducted monetary policy. They were given a new policy tool by by Congress to pay interest on reserves. And they've shifted from, you know, what used to be called open market operations. Essentially, the, the Fed would buy and sell government bonds, treasuries uh, to raise or lower the uh, federal funds rate. But sort of they've, they've sort of announced in the last few years that they've created sort of the new regime, what they call ample reserves. And the idea is that, you know, the, the Fed holds now a balance of, of nearly $9 trillion in, in government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And the idea is that, that you know, Traditionally, when when reserves get that large, there would be pressure on banks to to make more loans—not pressure, but lower interest rates and causing more loans and causing inflationary pressure. But the Fed says, well, you know, we have this new tool of interest on reserves, and that keeps the balance sheet in check uh, because the Feds are not going to the banks are not going to loan out more money to to businesses if we're going to pay them more on their reserves, and so they'll keep them parked at, at the Fed. And so the idea is that this huge balance sheet run up was not inflationary because. You know, interest rates were low and the Fed was keeping them low and they had their tool of interest on reserves as their safety measure. But, you know, the question becomes, if interest rates start going up, market interest rates and inflationary pressures continue to push interest rates up, what is what does the Fed do? Now, they've announced they're going to they're going to raise interest rates, uh, which they can do through, you know, supposedly reducing the, the their balance of reserves. They also can pay interest on reserves, but those work at cross-purposes, potentially, because you, know, you, you reduce reserves by, uh, by, by buying back the bonds, um, but then you also have to pay interest on reserves. So you're putting money back into the system by paying interest on reserves, you're taking reserves out by buying the bonds, you know the, the what the potential budgetary effects are. You know interest rates rise, and the Fed is trying to, to to fight inflation and reduce reserves and keep interest rates low. But they have to raise their interest rates to keep the reserves you know in check. So you know because sort of this strange new new loop because of these two, two these two policy tools potentially interacting. So you know it is it it's curious. I mean you know again we've never been here before. It's it's a it's a new world. Um, and I don't know how much thought has been given on the potential effect on the budget versus the, the counteracting effects on, on, on interest rates and reserves. So have, have you given that any thought or what's, what's your, what's your feeling? I,
2: I think it's a fair statement, not meant to impugn anyone's integrity that they've decided not to worry about the budget, um, that they've got enough problems. And so, <laughs> so um, they will, um, proactively raise the federal funds rate, the traditional policy instrument, and then move the interest on reserves up in lockstep as a residual to keep things uh, lined up. And and so they'll keep the same differential they had for a while. And at the same time, they will simply reverse their, their purchases of $120 billion a month in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That that pumps $120 billion of, of liquidity out there into the markets every month for uh, nearly two full years, they'll, they'll reverse that and they'll take out. I think eighty is the number that they're they're talking about, and so that will further increase interest rate pressures out there because you're going to pull all that liquidity out. And um, the question is how much that channel has, um, and if that channel produces even higher interest rate hikes, they'll they'll just they'll move the interest on reserves again to match it and try to keep that sort of reserve holding behavior by by uh, banks in neutral and let market interest rates fluctuate to slow down the economy. Um, I, I think that's the best statement of the plan. I don't think they, they know how much drawing down the balance sheet is going to affect uh, the sort of market interest rates. They know how much moving the federal funds rate affects market interest rates. They're far more comfortable with it. And so I think they will, um, well, they, Powell has said on occasion, you know, we, we're going to put the, the drawdown in the size of the portfolio essentially on autopilot, and the the discretionary move will happen with the federal funds rate. So if they're getting more out of the balance sheet than they anticipated, we'll get less in the way of aggressive Fed hikes um, uh, in response. And so they're going to worry about that. What happens to you know the, the remittances that used to go back to the federal government? I think is you know a problem for twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four, and um, sort of proactively using interest on reserves as a An anti-inflation policy tool is too hard. They don't know enough, so they're just going to try to keep it sitting in the background, roughly consistent with where it's been for a while.
0: Well, I mean, I think you're right. The Fed is not thinking budget policy, but I mean, if you look historically, uh, when inflation gets high, long-term rates go up, and the Fed is and to fight inflation, the Fed is basically forced to to flatten the yield curve. In other words, the the short-term rate and the long-term rate have to Basically, be equal, and historically, they have been equal at the inflation rate. Um, And so, you know, the 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 risk here is if if the nominal interest rate rises to the inflation rate, and inflation remains at, you know, five, six, seven, eight percent, the the budgetary impact on that is is just going to be huge. I mean, we're paying, you know, two percent effective interest rates right now on on twenty trillion dollars in debt. If that two percent goes to four, six, or eight. I mean, the Fed may not want to talk about or think about budget policy, but the, the impact on the budget was potentially so large that the Congress is going to be beating on their door to, to, to do something. And the question is, what do they do and how do they do it?
2: They, they, they beat on Congress's door and tell them to do something. Um, <laughs> because really, this is the danger of the fiscal policy that we've been running in the 21st century, which is that it, it's so highly levered that interest rate increases really have... Big financial consequences. And um, everyone knows this, but no one wants to be the person to fix it. Um, uh, so the Congress might just have to, to fix some of that. I, I think the key here are you, are you going to sort of end up at a high level at the inflation rate or are you going to end up at a, at a low level in the inflation rate? It comes down to a wage setting. And this is why the Fed, I think, has been so hawkish in its recent talk let's like it was way too easy way too long um it, it misdiagnosed the transitory nature versus the permanent nature of inflation all that's true but since the beginning of the year they have all gotten lined up all the governors all the regional uh, bank presidents and they have sent a hawkish message about how we're going to do what it takes we're going to break this inflation's back we're going to do it um, as expeditiously as possible and that's all meant to try to avoid a wage price spiral and, and have people not proactively setting wages in anticipation of future inflation. The whole problem is a lot easier if they can get that to happen. And I mean, that's just that's just a uh, just a, a, a full court press talking operation by the by the Fed.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, how much do, do expectations matter? I mean, matter the off. Fed has spent yeah, the Fed has spent 40 years building up credibility and goodwill because we've seen falling inflation for 40 years and basically level inflation for the past 22. And it's been in in the 2% interest rate range. Um, If the Fed loses its credibility and the market's, I mean, expectations go south on them, I mean, things could go bad, very bad, very quickly. Yes,
2: that's exactly right. And you know, again, I, th- I think they made a mistake um, and, and they know it and they're trying to quickly recover from that mistake and not
1: lose the credibility that has been built up over decades. And
2: if if they were to, to not do that, they would lose their credibility entirely
1: for this week. Thank you for joining Facing the Future. Thank you, Tori and Steve. Uh, this is Bob Bixby, your host, and I will be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.